This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For news about In Our Time and for recommendations about our archive, please follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoy the programmes. Hello. He who saw the deep, that's a quotation, the first words of the epic of Gilgamesh, said to be the first great masterpiece of literature, a poem with roots more than 4,000 years old in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and rediscovered in the 19th century. It tells of Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, who, with his best friend, uh, his friend Enkidu, fights a giant and kills the bull of heaven, and alone travels across the waters of death to meet the one man who survived the great flood, in the vain hope of learning from him how to live forever. In his adventure, Gilgamesh becomes a wiser man and a better king, and learns to accept his mortality. We have much but not all of the ancient texts from clay tablets gathered near Mosul, and it's hoped more discoveries will continue to fill the gaps. With me to discuss the epic of Gilgamesh are Andrew George, Professor of Babylonian at SOAS, University of London, Francis Reynolds, Shunator Fellow in Assyriology at the Oriental Institute, University of Oxford, and Fellow of St. Bennet's Hall, and Martin Worthington, Lecturer in Assyriology at the University of Cambridge. Andrew George, where do we look for, for the origins of the Gilgamesh poem? Well, we don't know much about the origins of the poem. The first thing we know about the poem is, is that it was written down on clay tablets in the cuneiform script uh, in the very first centuries of the second millennium BC. That's nearly 4,000 years ago. But we can judge, I think, from the style of the poem, um, from its use of features of oral poetry, oral epic poetry in particular, that it was once, I think... Uh, a poem that was told by minstrels, told by, by bards, sung perhaps orally before it became written down. So 4,000 is the lower marker. It was a few hundred years, maybe a 1,000 or so years before then. But we don't know, but that's an educated guess. We just don't know, but that, as you say, is an educated guess. But what we do find is, is that because uh, the material on which the uh, epic is written, clay tablets in the cuneiform script, uh, is very durable, then we find that we've got pieces of this poem from many centuries, from that time about the 19th century BC right down to 100 BC. So we can observe the evolution and development of the poem across an enormous time span, which is extremely exciting. You have a view about who wrote this poem. You thought that there was a person. It wasn't an amalgam of folk tales and this, that and the other. Can you develop that? Well, I think that, that, that both those uh, that those positions are in some way correct. That certainly, it seems to me that the uh, the poem suggests itself that, that it is the work of a single creative genius. But on the other hand, how, does that, how do you arrive at that conclusion? Uh, uh, because it has the integrity uh, of 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 uh, mood and thought behind it. Um, it seems to me uh, that that it must be the work of, of of one man. But on the other hand, the creation of literature in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, as elsewhere traditionally, uh, depends upon using the given material. And, and a lot of folklore existed, I think, in ancient Mesopotamia, which we don't know of, but which uh, is, is used by the poet of Gilgamesh in, in constructing this, this great poem. So it was first written down, as far as, you know, let us say, 4,000 years ago. And yeah. then you think about 1,000 years later, another person got hold of it and changed it quite, uh, quite a lot. That seems to be the case. The, the, the poem that we have in the oldest fragments is, is, uh, has, a, it seems, a very different mood from the 
poem that is much better preserved from a thousand years later. And the Babylonians themselves uh, gave us the name of the poet, a name that seems to be younger than the oldest version of the poem. Um, so it seems that the mood changes from uh, a poet, uh, uh, sorry, a poem about, about the glory of an epic hero, the glory of the greatest he hero and king of old, to one that is essentially a meditation upon the facts of life and particularly on death. This, it seems to me, is an, in, uh, an intervention in, in the poem which is very considerable, uh, changes it completely, and uh, then I would think that this is also the work of an individual. How did the text reach us? The text reaches us on, uh, on clay tablets, as I've said. The, these clay tablets uh, have come to light uh, since the 1850s, generally, in their tens of thousands, but the first great discovery in 1850 uh, resulted in, in 20,000 clay tablets uh, with cuneiform script on them being sent back to the British Museum. And there they sat for about 15 years until in 1866 the museum authorities appointed a young man to sort them. And this was George Smith, and by ten, year, by ten years after that, uh, a period during which uh, cuneiform script was properly deciphered, the languages in which, uh, which, which used the script were, began to be properly studied and, and understood. He was able, ten years after uh, beginning his work, to give a, a fair translation of, of the preserved parts of the epic, as it was then known, though not necessarily in the right order. And that was the basis of your translation, which has been widely praised as being uh, quite wonderful. And I must say, it, read, it reads beautifully and fluidly, as if it were fragments from a sort of wasteland, really. Well, what's been happening since George Smith is, is that further discoveries of tablets have, have <coughs> occurred. Uh, and this is going on. We are essentially pioneers in Assyriology, recovering the world's old, uh, oldest literatures, not just Gilgamesh, but many other compositions. This is a work that continues... Uh, I've been the latest person to have had the privilege in, in, in bringing together the, the texts about Gilgamesh. But um, it's work that must continue. But our problem is, is that Assyriology is not very well financed and always vulnerable to cuts. So we're not sure if this, this, this field has a future. We desperately hope that it has. Well, Fran Reynolds, we'll wait and see for that one. Can you summarise the plot of it? Yes, I mean, as Andrew said, it is an amazing story. Um, we start off with a, a very poetic prologue and a hymn, but when the narrative gets going, we have Gilgamesh as a king in Uruk who's abusing his power. It's a period of tyranny. Um, the city can't function as it should. Um, as a result, there's an outcry. He's preoccupying the people, particularly the young, in martial exercises. Um, he's abusing his rights. Um, and in response, the mother goddess actually creates a wild man, Enkidu, from clay, to be a match to Gilgamesh. And the idea is that this will therefore absorb his energies, his aggression. He's brought up with the herds, isn't he? That's he great, correct. He eats grass, he arrives at the waterhole with the herds. He exactly. is very much an animal when we meet him, yes. Exactly, which is a fascinating idea of, of the king misbehaving in the city and the wild man with the gazelles. Um, obviously, then they need to meet, and the bridging um, device there is that a prostitute from the temple of the city of Uruk, and we have to remember that the prostitute here is a high-status cultic prostitute right in the heart of the city, um, is sent out to trap um, Enkidu. Um, he is then meets Gilgamesh. They Hold fight. on, I mean, let's talk about yeah. the entrapment. I mean, it's quite <laughs> worth talking about. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, he comes, she seduces him. It's okay. very important that, that he is humanised through contact with the woman, which Absolutely. takes place, as we hear, 
uh, unabashedly and unashamedly for seven days and seven nights. Absolutely. And the end is humanised. Absolutely, indeed. And also he's not as, not as much the animal he was. He's more of a human because of this particular sort of contact. Exactly. For so long. Yes, it's, it's an interesting fact that he then can't live with the gazelles anymore, but he has intelligence and wisdom to connect um, with humans. So he then sets off for the city and, and he meets Gilgamesh and he challenges him to a battle and it's, it's a, a sort of draw, then they become very, very close friends. Indeed. Um, and in a sense, the city isn't too big, it's, isn't big enough for the two of them. They then set off to the Cedar Forest um, where they fight the guardian, Anoga Humbaba, and he is killed. After this victory... Um, this is a great monster. We mustn't underestimate absolutely. it. We're told that he rustles around the floor of the forest, can yeah. herd from one end of the forest to the other, he shouts and moments. So they, it's a great big epic monster that they face. Absolutely. And so they're we told have... all the way along, you mustn't do this. Yes, quite right. So the slaying of Humbaba is indeed an act of hubris. It's an offence to the gods. And, of course, Gilgamesh himself is this sort of semi-human, semi-divine figure. He's a giant. Enkidu matches him. They effectively meet another king in the Cedar Forest in Humbaba. Then, after that um, encounter and victory, they then carry on. And when Gilgamesh is washing after the battle, the goddess Ishtar sees him and desires him and proposes marriage. Um, we have a wonderful inversion then of the classical proposal of marriage from a man to a woman with the goddess proposing marriage to Gilgamesh. Um, however, Ishtar is the goddess of sex and violence. Um, a proposal from her is an extremely dangerous matter. Um, Gilgamesh rejects her advances. Because her previous lovers have come to a very Indeed. dire end. <laughs> exactly. Every one of them. If one looks at her dating history, one is not encouraged not to be the latest no. partner of Ishtar. Um, however, he's extremely rude um, in his rejection. She's furious and calls on her father, the sky god Anu, um, to bring the bull of heaven down to kill Gilgamesh. But the heroes prevail and there is another slaughter and another act of hubris. And then two big, sorry to rush you a bit, but, but, but two or three big things. One big thing that happens is that, uh, that Enkidu in dreams, discovers he's going to die and does die and causes great humanist, if we can use that word, great grief to Gilgamesh. The other Gilgamesh sets off in the path of the sun to find the man who has survived the flood and discover the secret of immortal life and gets there and the, the man who's, who, who has, gives him one test is, so if you're going to beat immortal life, you've got to beat sleep. Try not to sleep. He immediately falls asleep for seven days and if he can't sleep, then he can't beat death. Yes, Absolutely. Um, it's the kind of humiliation that he can't even manage to conquer sleep. And how would you say he ends then? He comes back and what, what is the ending of this? Um, the ending is that Gilgamesh travels back to Uruk um, with the ferryman who enabled him to cross the waters of death and reach the flood survivor. And when he reaches his city, um, he is able to reach a reconciliation that while every mortal individual will die... Nonetheless, the human race is eternal and he can see the city as an expression of humanity and of future generations. So it's the classic story of a journey that ends where it's begun, but with different perception. And he has built this wall and that wall, walling the city, keeping the city going, is his real legacy. Uh, if one well, is thinking of a concrete legacy, yes. 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 Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Sorry, I must, we, got, we got all of it in, just about. <laughs> We missed, the, we, missed, we missed the plant of rejuvenation, which was stolen while he had a, a bathe, but we've got to move on now to Martin Worthington. We speak about it as a poem. Did it come down to us as a poem? 
Well, the definition of poetry is highly controversial even today. In the particular case of Babylonia, we're very lucky because when they write things which we call poems, they lay them out in poetic lines so that each line is a complete clause or sentence, so it's syntactically complete. That's one indicator that this isn't just unvarnished prose. Also, um, what we call Babylonian poems have verses which are normally constructed around three or four nuggets of meaning, meaning one principal word. And this makes them tremendously economical. Um, if you take a verse of Babylonian poetry and translate it into English, you often find the number of words doubles. So, um, for example, if we take a Babylonian verse that says, That's a mere four words. But in English it becomes, An axe was lying there and people were gathering round it. And these are words you might not actually notice as a reader of an English poem, because they're not terribly important. But in the Babylonian, they're not there to clutter you. And so Babylonian verses unfold one after the other in a sort of poetic march of words with a great power. They don't have rhyme uh, in the way that we might expect from a poem, and they don't really have rhythm in the sense of dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum in the way that English poems do. But at the same time, there's a great force in the words, and there are often lots of subtle little tricks um, which are built in. So, for example, in the flood story, which is part of the flood story, in the flood story, which is part of the Gilgamesh poem, um, we have this uh, line where the uh, hero of the flood is told to destroy his house, and he's also told told to spurn riches. So it goes, mushir meshram. Now that verbal form mushir wouldn't normally have an M. So if you're a second year Acadian student at one of our universities or indeed any other university and you're sitting there scratching your head saying why on earth is the M there? I wouldn't expect it to be there. You know it could sort of be there archaically but what's it there for? But then you look at the next word. It's mushir meshram. And because Akkadian like Arabic like Hebrew like all Semitic languages is above all interested in consonants you suddenly see that mushir, abandon, and meshrama, wealth, are put side by side so they look like they have the same consonants, m-sh-r. So they've gone out of their way to sort of reinvent an old consonant and to take it somewhere it isn't really needed for the sake of achieving um, this play on the words two roots. Um, so there are lots of details of verbal artistry in the story of Gilgamesh. Um, so I think that by any definition we're more than comfortable in calling it a poem even if the Babylonians themselves don't seem to have talked about poems in the way that the Western tradition does. One of the things that's very striking about this in, in, Adrian's, uh, and in Andrew's uh, uh, translation is that repetitions occur again and again and again. For instance, uh, calling on the winds, the north wind, the east wind, the west wind, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, and, when, and how many leagues they walk um, when they stop to eat. And these are repeated as, uh, again and again. Is that is that because of the way translation came to you or is it because of the way the poem was intended to be? Repetition is a very interesting feature of Mesopotamian poetry at large. It already starts in Sumerian, it carries through to Babylonian, um, and it can take many forms. You can have the repetition of an entire passage, so ten lines appear here and then they appear later. You can have repetition within a line, or you could, for example, have a string of lines that start with the same word. And at different times, different poets use all of these strategies. And they're something that we're not really used to. 
We can speculate about why it is, and you can construct different models which are based on your uh, literary sympathies. Uh, one model might be it reminds people what's happening. Um, the other idea might be if you're telling the story out orally, you can have the same passage told with different tones of voice so that the words acquire different resonances. Um, we could talk a long time. Repetition is a striking feature of Mesopotamian literature. You can't call to mind the great uh, calling up of the winds, can you, in, 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 the, in the language? It's a big ask, isn't it? Um, we could get Andrew's book out, but I wouldn't like to try it off the top of my head. Um, Andrew? No, nor would I. My memory doesn't... doesn't it, it appears three or four around. times. It's terrific, isn't yeah. it? The curse of wind and uh, tornadoes and hurricanes. No, that's fine. Fair enough. Thank you very much. Uh, Andrew, um, can you tell us about a bit about Gil, Gilgamesh? What qualities does he have? What is he like at the start of the poem? It's, it's been hinted at by Fran, but well, it's been talked about by Fran. Can we develop it? Uh, he starts out as a king and a bad king. And um, this ties in with political thought in ancient Mesopotamia, which if you're a king is going to exercise power properly and uh, in, uh, in everyone's uh, advantage, then the king must be counselled. But our problem with Gilgamesh, this great giant hero living in Uruk, is that, who's, whose mother is a goddess is that he's superhuman, he doesn't have a counsellor, and therefore the, the story has to bring a counsellor to him, and that's one of Enkidu's jobs, to make him a counsellor. But later on in the poem we discover that the kingship of Gilgamesh is not really at issue anymore, that, but he, that he becomes just one of us. And, and the reason why this poem, I think, resonates for us is because we can identify with his human struggle as a man. But is it unusual, you tell me, to have a poem of such prominence and uh, at the time and since which criticises the court, which criticises the king from the beginning? I mean, he has the right of the first night uh, with all brides and so on. He takes sons away from their fathers. He is he's, he's seriously described as a, as a terrible tyrant. Uh, is that usual is it, or is it, is it unique that we have this? I would say it's this? usual, but it's certainly not unique. Uh, I think in... in um, societies where uh, uh, which lived under autocratic government uh, then as well as now literature has a special role to play in in uh, being subversive in being critical of power speaking truth unto power but in such a way that power doesn't quite realize it Gilgamesh certainly does that <coughs> it's not alone there are other uh, ancient literary compositions from Mesopotamia that uh, bring the same critical analysis to power Fran Reynolds We've come to Enkedu, this this man who is taken from the herd, taken from the herd, humanized by uh, uh, Shamhat and by Shamhat and so on, and brought it, and he goes to. Uh, what way he's, he seems to be a compliment to Gilgamesh? How is he? Can you describe that? Yes, I, I think that operates on many levels. Um, on one level, they complement one another physically, in that we have wonderful descriptions of both Gilgamesh and Enkidu, their supreme physical beauty, their stature. They also complement one another in a sense of their abilities, their aggression, their energy. So they, they effectively, Gilgamesh for the first time finds a peer, um, somebody with whom he can travel, with whom he can have these adventures. So I think there's a very nice physical parallelism. When they first go to the shepherd's camp, um, when, they're on, when Shamhat and Enkidu are on their way back to Uruk, the shepherds say to Enkidu, you look so like Gilgamesh, you know, this is extraordinary. Um, so I think there's a meeting on a lot of levels between those two. And the word love between them is used quite regularly mm. in the poem, isn't it? 
It uh, is indeed. How do you interpret that? Well, obviously, this has been a matter of much debate, what the nature of the relationship actually was between Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Um, and this obviously also respects, reflects the responses to the poem of the readers of the time. Um, but it seems clear that as well as a very close friendship, there was also a sexual relationship between them. So the relationship was also one on that, that level, as well as one of, of being companions. Because when uh, Inkidu uh, dies, the, the grief of Gilgamesh is unbounded, isn't it, really? You won't, won't have him buried for days. He, mm-hmm. The most ex- biggest funeral that there's ever been in Mesopotamia, and on he goes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. No, he is devastated. And, of course, that then moves the action forward into the second part of the epic. Can we develop that, uh, Martin, this idea of relationship between the two? Because I, I mentioned the word love because it's in um, Andrew's translation several times. They hold hands, they walk through things and so on. They're, but they're two mighty men who slay great monsters. Um, what else, what other parts of the relationship are important for us to know about? One of the wonderful things about Mesopotamian literature is that it often does things that aren't visible on the surface. So you have to look very carefully to see what messages are nestling between the spoken words. So, for example, um, Gilgamesh actually has dreams which prefigure Enkidu's arrival, and in the first dream he sees an axe, and in the second dream... Sorry, in the first dream he sees a meteor, and in the second dream he sees an axe. Now, people have sought to interpret these two dreams in terms of linguistic puns, so the word for axe sounds vaguely like the word for a male cultic prostitute, and so on and so forth, and so in some sense these two dreams prefigure the sexual relationship between the two... But, I mean, it all becomes very unwieldy, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you have these dreams about totally random objects just for the sake of introducing some sort of wordplay, and the words barely exist in the first place. So there's another way of looking at it, which is to say Enkidu is created by the gods from a pinch of clay, and then he's humanised by Shamhat in the six days and seven nights you were talking about earlier. So in the first dream, we have a meteor, i.e. a raw material that comes down from heaven, And in the second dream, we have an axe, i.e. a humanised artefact, made out of the raw material from the first dream. And so you can interpret these two dreams as a tacit prefiguration of Enkidu's transformation. And this would also explain why, in these dreams, there's no mention of the fact that Enkidu starts out as a wild creature and so on and so forth, because it's all there implicit. Um, So this is something the story does a lot of. And there's a very nice bit with the axe, because we've said that in the in the second dream, Enkidu is symbolised by an axe. And indeed, this is a theme that's picked up in the poem. So Enkidu is going to be Gilgamesh's axe because he's the friend at his side, he protects him, he's the Musherzib Izri, he's the saviour of his companion, and so on and so forth. And actually, so long as Enkidu is at Gilgamesh's side... Or in front of him, usually. Or in front of him, very in, good. In, in, very good reading Gamesh's there. mother says, go in front of him, quite because so. the front one gets the hit and my son is going to walk behind you. At his she side, doesn't quite say that, but that, the implication is clear. At his side or in front of him, yeah. Gilgamesh doesn't have an axe. Once Enkidu is dead, suddenly Gilgamesh has an axe, the weapon in his hand. And, of course, this is probably because so long as Gilgamesh was alive, the axe was symbolically present in the form of Enkidu, and so Gilgamesh didn't need one. But once Enkidu's gone, then we need a replacement for the lost Enkidu. And so there are all these little games being played about the nature of their relationship, which have to be rustled out, and I'm sure there are many more that we still have to rustle. Andrew George, Gilgamesh kills the guardian of the cedar forest. Um, Can you tell us why the cedar forest is so important and how they managed to kill this alarming monster and 
annoy the gods for killing one of their best monsters. Mm. The cedar forest in Mesopotamia is the name given to a remote forest uh, far away in the east or the west, uh, whence kings uh, and rulers got timber for big building projects. projects. There was no timber in in ancient Mesopotamia. It had to be brought in, imported from the mountains. So the cedar forest is a well-known term in ancient Mesopotamia. But the poet of Gilgamesh visualises it somewhat differently from how one would expect. And in fact, uh, only recently in, in this, uh, a, a new manuscript has come to light which plugs a gap in the story and describes the cedar forest to us. It's actually a jungle. It's a jungle filled with the shrieks of birds, the cacophony of insects and, uh, and monk- monkeys yelling in the trees, all entertaining uh, the guardian Kumbaba who lives in the middle like a king uh, surrounded by his musicians. Um, the, the forest itself is used in the poem... Uh, to make a particular point, uh, Gilgamesh Enkidu and Enkidu go there with the intent of killing Humbaba and chopping down his trees. This is what they do. But the poet uh, brings a sort of ambivalence into this episode, which might be construed to be heroic and glorious. But in fact, the heroes realise that what they're doing is against the will of the gods. And indeed, the new piece of tablet tells us at the end, after Enkidu and Gilgamesh have chopped down the trees... Uh, the Enkidu looks back and he says, My friend, we've created this wasteland. What shall we tell the gods when we get back home? So there's an awareness there that man lives in an environment and he, lived, he, he can destroy and damage that environment and that is wrong. That is wrongful. And the idea there in this episode is also that to invade someone else's country and kill the king and uh, d- destroy their resources or pillage the resources and take them back to home. This is also somehow morally wrong. So the, the poet here is again critical of power. Do we have enough detail of the way in which they kill uh, this great monster, Hawawa or Humbaba, depending on which one you use? Uh, is there enough detail to be convincing about it, or, or are there pieces missing there which would have been uh, illuminated a little rather more? There are still gaps in the story, as elsewhere in the story. We've only got about two-thirds of this epic poem. Um, but we know that the uh, monster, Humbaba, was immobilised by the winds, and then uh, he pleaded for his life. Uh, Enkidu and Gilgamesh, in the end, tire of his pleading, and Enkidu and Gilgamesh both uh, cut him, cut his throat and um, extra- <laughs> rather gorily extract his heart and lungs. But an interesting thing they also do is they cut off his teeth, which is some reflection of... of uh, Huawa being uh, elephantine in some way, and another uh, reference to the trade in raw materials that, uh, uh, that the Mesopotamian kings indulged in. Then we have this uh, scene, Fran Reynolds, where Ishtar, uh, the goddess, uh, sees Gilgamesh and proposes uh, um, very powerfully that she wants to marry him or take him, or whichever word you wish to use, both, I presume, <laughs> and uh, he resists. Can you tell us about that scene? Yes, um, this is one of the critical scenes in the epic and and it's an interesting encounter in that first of all we have Gilgamesh in a sense being very vulnerable he's just won this great victory over Humbaba as Andrew's been describing and he's washing after the battle and we often find that there will be an event when heroes are kind of relaxed they're not expecting something to happen and because of the display of his body Ishtar sees him and as you say there is this strong desire um, being a goddess of love and war, one might also say sex and violence, she's extremely direct, she's very aggressive, um, so she proposes to him, promising him wealth and power, 
But uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, she does have this very, um, let's say, disencouraging dating history of this terrible fate that's met by all her previous lovers. Um, so Gilgamesh refuses. Um, he doesn't want to be the latest in the list of casualties. And she takes. She tries to take her revenge. Indeed. Um, she's not used to not getting what she wants. Um, you know, to actually thwart Ishtar is, is a very dangerous strategy. So she calls down from her father, the sky god, this great monster, the bull of heaven, um, to kill Gilgamesh and to destroy Uruk. Um, this is a ferocious animal. You know, its, it's breath withers vegetation, pits open up in the earth. Um, it can destroy anything that's in its path. Um, but Gilgamesh and Enkidu do prevail. And there's a very nice codicil to that, um, where Ishtar's so angry she goes up on the ramparts of Uruk and is actually sort of abusing the heroes. So Enkidu tears off the haunch of the bull, the hind leg, and actually throws it at Ishtar. And this is part of the etiology for the constellation, the Bull of Heaven, which is our Taurus and how it appears in the sky to have one leg missing. <laughs> <laughs> Right, isn't it? <laughs> it is. There's always more. I was one of the right Martin, Martin Worthington, how does the death of Inkadu affect Gilgamesh and uh, and and uh, the course of the poem? Well, at the start of what we call tablet, meaning chapter eight, um, Enkidu's dead, and Gilgamesh pronounces a funeral elegy for him, and it begins, as you might expect, "O Enkidu." Now, this is very surprising because if you look carefully. Gilgamesh has so far never actually spoken the name Enkidu. As far as we know, there are gaps in the there text. There are gaps. Might have done in the gaps. Might have done in the gaps. But it's also interesting that in the text we have Enkidu has never spoken the name Gilgamesh, whereas other characters have used the people's names and the two chaps have used other people's names. So it rather looks as if there was some sort of convention which, for reasons we don't understand, acted as a constraint on how they called each other. And as soon as Enkidu dies, this constraint is lifted. There's a paradigm shift. It's transformative. Um, and so suddenly the name is preserved. And of course, this makes sense, because what do we put on our tombstones? You know, the name is the one thing that's going to preserve you forever. And so the first thing that Gilgamesh does is he preserves Enkidu's name. Now, we know from an earlier version of the story that Gilgamesh is very reluctant to give Enkidu up for burial for a long time. Adi tultu imkut am ina apishu, until a worm drops from his nose. Um, and then finally he realises, OK, it's time to move on. And then he starts thinking about himself. And, of course, his friend having died means, oh dear, am I going to die too? Well, the one person who can give me advice on that is the one man who became immortal, the flood hero, so let's go and find him. And so... Gilgamesh embarks on this quest to find a flood hero, but along the way, he becomes a bit like Enkidu himself. Um, he starts roaming the wild, he wears lion skins, and in fact, this is something the god Shamash, the sun god, had foretold to Enkidu on his deathbed, saying, after you die, Gilgamesh will start, implicitly, behaving like you. And this seems to be some comfort to the dying Enkidu. And these journeys he takes are massive journeys described as enormous journeys in terms of distances, time taken, following the path of the sun or whatever it is, going over the waters of death. And so. Andrew George, he goes in search of Uta Napishti, the man, the one man who survived the great deluge. And then we have a story within a story in a way. Could you tell us about that? How did he survive? Yes, the story of Uta Napishti is, is uh, found elsewhere in Babylonian literature, but the poet of Gilgamesh has used it as a story within a story, and for a very good reason, which we'll give you in a moment. That Utanapishti is asked by Gilgamesh, how is it that you became immortal? And he tells the story of how a long time ago uh, the gods had sent a, a great flood 
but he had been told in advance to prepare a, a boat and bring into it all the seed, the seed of all living things and his family and kith and kin and thus to survive the deluge. The deluge came, Utanapishti, and his family and seed of all living things were preserved in the boat floating on the water. And there's a very moving bit here where uh, Utanapishti describes how when the rain ceased and things had gone quiet, he opened a hatch and looked out and um, he could see only water. And then he reflects on, on his position, on, on what has happened. He sees that all men have died. And he says, Uktamisma atasha babaki eliduri apia ilaka dimaya. I knelt me down and sat there weeping. And over the sides of my cheeks, the tears did flow. So, and when I read this with my students, many students say they're actually moved by the original Babylonian here, uh, which is interesting in a poem that's 4,000 years old. But the purpose of the poet has other emotional parts as well, but the purpose of the flood story then is to tell Gilgamesh, look, Utanapishti, I Utanapishti became immortal through a one-off event long time ago in history. It's not going to happen to you. There is no secret. There is nothing I can tell you more than that. Except that Utanapishti does have more to say, which is that he teaches Gilgamesh about life and about death. He teaches Gilgamesh that life is something the gods have given to mankind, but for each individual... They're like a mayfly on the river. They're there for a moment, and then they die. But the human race, symbolised by the family, recreates itself cyclically, so that the human race is immortal, but the individual is, is, is mortal. The individual must die. And I think we must remember that Babylonia was probably a society a lot more like many Asian societies than European ones, which privileged the individual. In many Asian societies, it's society... The community that's privileged and the individual has to find his way, his path in the community and to the community's advantage. There's something there in the poem of that too. And then he, a, as a compensation, he gives him a plant which would rejuvenate him. The snake steals the plant, sheds the skin on the way into, back into the bush. He gets back, as you, we've said earlier, he gets back to Uruk. Fran Reynolds, what impact did the deluge story have on uh, the 19th century? 19th century scholars and people, anybody who know about it, or Christians and Jews, and know about Noah. Did it, was it instantly compared with, or what happened? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, it was an extremely high impact. Um, when George Smith and British Museum first deciphered the flood story in 1872, I mean, the shock on him was extraordinary. We have this account about how he was in the British Museum, but undressed and ran about the room. Um, this may have just been in the British Museum. In the British Museum. When he discovered the story of the deluge. Exactly. The was anybody else there at the time? Never mind, that's a trivial <laughs> question. <laughs> and we have we have to note that this may have been slight early Victorian PR. Possibly he just loosened his collar, but you know, the idea of him yeah. running around undressed. Oh, I know, I think he went all the way. <laughs> Stick with the original. <laughs> Um, but um, as you can appreciate, discovering this flood story, which nobody would have predicated and came from sources much older than any known sources to the Bible, was extremely high impact. This went beyond the, the limited world of scholarship. Um, this became a matter of national discussion involving prime ministers, heads of state. Um, it was internationally discussed. And of course, for some people, it was seen as a threat. Um, the question was, 
Was it something that somehow undermined the Bible or indeed was it something that supported the Bible? Could it be seen as, as you know, sort of supporting the the um, belief in the Bible as a literal text? So it was very controversial. This went way beyond the realms of just a scholarly matter. Is the, scholars, is the argument still, does the argument still continue, Martin Worthington, between Noah and the, uh, the, the, the survivor in Gilgamesh? The argument, argument for who came first? Oh, um, in a sense, it's an argument which will go on forever and can never be resolved. Um, and I think there are very... F- I think ultimately you'll find a seriologist saying that uh, Gilgamesh comes first and you'll find some Old Testament scholars saying that... Andrew? Yeah, I'm just going to add... I'm sorry to interrupt, Martin. I was just going to add simply that um, the evidence of archaeology is, is clearly that these tablets on which the flood story survives in Mesopotamia date back 4,000 years from now. Uh, there's nothing that suggests that uh, the story in Genesis of Noah dates back anything like that long. So in terms of precedence, the Mesopotamian story, uh, both as an independent story and probably also in Gilgamesh, is rather older, uh, considerably older than the story in Genesis. Is the idea of seeking of a man, a human being, seeking immortality, is that a given did it, that it happened before Gilgamesh, if, what, what, with whatever we had before Gilgamesh, or does he introduce that idea? I think that is a new idea. And what's very interesting is we don't really know how close he came to it. If you ask Gilgamesh, he'll probably tell you, oh, I was so close, you know, I had this plant, it would have given me youth or eternal life or something, and the damn snake bore it off, and here I am without it. But actually, um, he had to go and get that plant down in the subterranean waters called the Apsu, which are the realm of the god Ea, who's the trickiest of Mesopotamian gods. So it's quite possible that when Utenapishti, the flood hero, said, go and find the plant down in the Apsu, he knew that Ea would take care of the matter and arrange things so that they'd pan out. And, of course, it's in a pool of fresh water that Gilgamesh loses the plant, and, again, fresh water is Ea. So it's quite possible that we have um, the hand of Ea in Gilgamesh's ultimate failure. We've touched on this, but I'd like to develop it as we come towards the end of the programme, Andrew. How is the Gilgamesh who returns to Uruk different from the Gilgamesh we see at the start of the poem? Uh, That's uh, very interesting and and not very much explored. It seems that he must be different um, because it's the end of the poem. But the end of the poem has been thought unsatisfactory by some people and indeed they have tried to add other bits of other poems to it to, to have it, Gilgamesh dying at the end but in the poem itself he doesn't die he simply returns home and then he tells his companion to go up onto the wall and look at the city but it, a close reading of the very beginning tells us I think what's going on um, because his epic career is described there in a few lines and the words that relate to his homecoming have no action in them before he's all action, there's process involved, he's doing things. When he gets home, everything stops. All the verbs are in what we call the stative form that describe inaction, as if when he got to the end of his journey, which you might think is the end of a human life, he stops doing anything and he doesn't do any anymore. He's like Pierre Bezukhov in War and Peace. He suddenly finds contentment in actually observing life and not doing anything himself. Is that regarded as an improvement? Is that regarded as a step up? Is that regarded as as an ascension to wisdom? Um, I think perhaps it might be. And certainly there are many, many people who who think that the Epic of Gilgamesh has a spiritual side to it and does give lessons for uh, attaining wisdom. Fran Reynolds, what happened to the 
when it was rediscovered in, let's say, 1850, what happened to it since? Has it been added to with more discoveries? Has it been? Can you give us more information? Yes. Um, I mean, since the, the first discoveries of cuneiform tablets in the 19th century, as Andrew has indicated, we're basically engaged as a seriologist on one of the world's greatest jigsaw puzzles. So more tablets are coming up all the time um, that increase our evidence, often attesting to earlier versions of the story. Um, for instance, material from Ugarit and from other sites in modern-day Syria. Um, also a tablet which was in the news quite recently that came into the museum in Sulaymaniyah um, that gave us a lot of new information about the cedar forest. So the story certainly isn't over, and let's hope those gaps in the story are going to keep shrinking. <coughs> Margin, what would you say is the special appeal of Gilgamesh these days? Well, to somebody who does a seriology... <coughs> It's an incredibly exciting intellectual adventure. As Fran was saying, new finds, new words, new meanings, new patterns, new grammatical rules. A seriology is an expanding field, which is tre tremendous. If you're outside a seriology, then Gilgamesh has something for everyone. You talk to people who specialise in Dante, and they say Dante's so great because you can never get to the bottom of him. You can always reread him. Talk to people who study Thucydides, and they say exactly the same. And I think we can say the same about Gilgamesh. You know, you have got everything. You've got sex. You've got the gods. You've got loss. You've got getting old. You've got youthful adventure you've got a monster what isn't to like and do you have anything to add to that, Andrew I would say that this is the one work of ancient Near Eastern literature uh, that we can engage with as individuals this is uh, this is something this is a, a hero who is very human he's always getting it wrong he's always doing wrong his 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 career ends in failure and we're all like that we all have to come to terms uh, with, with, with that mortality and that failure within us. And, and the, the trigger is often, as with Gilgamesh, the death of someone extremely close. Your translation has been hugely and widely admired, and I, I, it reads so fluently. Uh, is it, was it hard to... Robert Graves once said, if I'm simple to read because it's hard to write. <laughs> Are you in that position? I remember getting the proofs from Penguin, and uh, I wanted it to read better as a poem, so I read it out loud to myself on a hotel balcony in Baghdad, and I think that helped a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Can't end better than that. Thank you, Andrew George, Francis Reynolds and Martin Worthington. Next week we'll be discussing The Fighting Tamara by Turner, painted in 1839. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I think people might like to hear about time in Gilgamesh and how difficult it is to know how long things last. So... If you actually, with a poem like Beowulf, if you actually sit down and read it start to finish, you can tot up, there are so many days here and so many days there, and I don't know, the whole thing lasts a week. With Gilgamesh, I think we have absolutely no idea. Um, you know, there are a few days mentioned here, a few days mentioned over there, but does the whole thing last, in theory, it could last a month, or it could last a century, it could last a thousand years. There are all sorts of ways you can tie this in to the inverted commas, scare quotes, the Mesopotamian mind. People in the ancient Near East probably didn't know how old they were. Um, they didn't normally have to apply for jobs in the same way we do. So age was a much less of a factor. Um, and so it wasn't something they were interested in. And so they're probably less interested in measuring time in works of literature. So that's, that, that's something that I find interesting. I think, uh, too, there's, a, there's more to be had out of exploring the business of immortality in, in uh, Gilgamesh, because you mentioned, you asked the question, is there another story in ancient Mesopotamia where someone is in quest of immortal life? And I don't think there is. Um, the question that, that, that the poet wants us to ask is actually is immortality worth having the poet tells us about the gods, how the gods live forever but humans don't and it explores all sorts of 
issues to do with human life. What is the difference between men and gods, between men and animals, between civilised men and uncivilised men, between Babylonians and foreigners? And one thing it also explores that, that doesn't seem to have been very much touched on is would it be good to live forever? But if you look at the circumstances in which the flood hero is placed after he's made immortal by the gods, having survived the flood, he lives in against a landscape that is not described. It's a blank sheet. And he lives there forever with his wife. They have no company. The poet doesn't say, but he asks this question between the lines, isn't this an extremely lonely place to be, immortality? And I think if we think about the problem of immortality, when people say, oh, I'd like to live forever, in fact, and it's been explored in other literatures, living forever is probably hell on earth. Would you, what would you like to have gone into, Brad? I think um, one of the interesting things in Gilgamesh is the fact, of course, that it's in this very polytheistic society. So we have all these different gods um, occupying different roles and we have the interaction between them. And I, th I think that's something that's very interesting. Um, for example, we can see how Gilgamesh himself, of course, has this semi-divine nature. Um, his mother is a goddess. Um, she gets the sun god to protect him. We have the encounter with Ishtar, with aggression. Um, and then the wonderful um, interplay between the different deities and the flood story where Enlil wants to wipe out the human race. But the god Ea, whom Martin was talking about, who's a very tricky god and often the god of sort of cunning solutions, manages to, to let the flood hero know that this is going to happen to build the ark. And then the whole business after the flood of the reconciliation of gods and men. You know, somehow life has to go on after the flood. Um, so Endel's very angry. He didn't want survivors, but Aya manages to reconcile them. So I think I think that's another interesting aspect of this epic is is that it's in such a polytheistic world. Yeah, and one has to think of the gods not only as sort of superhuman personalities, but they're also forces of nature. So you can see that when mankind offends against the gods, actually mankind is offending against nature. You find that in the cedar forest, as we've discussed, but also. In the flood story, you have the same idea coming that that uh, somehow the expansion of human numbers uh, is such that the gods are disturbed. It's a, a kind of way of saying that too many people, overpopulation, burdens overburdens the earth, and the earth will do something about it. There's a kind of early uh, notion of Gaia theory here that the earth will respond uh, as a self-regulating uh, re mechanism and, and, and get rid of the plague. In Gilgamesh, of course, it's the gods who respond to the overpopulation of mankind in the flood story and, and try to wipe mankind out. So embedded there is, is, is the idea of, of uh, a view of ecology or the environment in which human beings do not, as in the Bible, have dominion over the earth, but they're actually part of uh, a world which is very carefully balanced. And there are opportunities for them to, to, to endanger this balance by cutting down the cedar forest, by growing too fast in numbers, uh, which uh, I think is a very sophisticated and, uh, uh, notion and uh, anticipates modern ideas about humans on, uh, on the planet too. There are more than 700 programmes to download and listen to for free from the In Our Time website, where you'll also find a reading list for this episode.